0: And now Daniel chapter eight. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision. And when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes And saw, and behold, a man standing on the bank of the canal. Excuse me, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westwards and northwards and southwards. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased. And became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And There was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the going over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold countenance, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great But not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand." The vision of the evenings and the mornings has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Thus far the reading of God's word. We come to... Not only a new chapter in the book of Daniel, but we come, in a sense, to a new section. You'll recall that we have been looking at this book and have seen two great divisions in this book. The first is a division in which there are the stories of God's people and God's deliverance. We see that in chapters 1 through 6 and all of our famous Sunday school stories of Daniel in the lion's den and of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego and the handwriting on the wall. And then the second half of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, are these series of visions that for many of us, as we read them, they make our heads spin. And we feel a bit like Daniel at the end. As it says in verse 27, that we are appalled by the vision and we don't understand it. You remember that The second division of the book of Daniel concerns language. And that between chapters 2, verse 4, and the end of chapter 7 is a section of the book of Daniel that is written in Aramaic. Aramaic is a form of Hebrew. It's only really used here and in two other small portions of the scripture. And you may recall that Aramaic was used as the language of the nations, international, This would be the equivalent of taking the truth of God's word and publishing it on the internet or in the newspaper so that everyone could hear and know. This chapter, chapter 8, sees us go back to Hebrew. And so what I would like us to think about here is God is saying something, but his main audience is not the nations as we have seen. His main audience is his people. He wants his people to know and understand. That's because his purpose here is different. It is less a proclamation of his power and more a proclamation of his power for comfort and assurance to his people. And so we have a vision here, and the vision seems a bit like the one that we have just looked at in chapter 7. There we also saw a vision of beasts. We also saw a little horn. There's a sense in which, too, and this vision is like other visions that have occurred before. The vision of the tall statue or the vision of the beasts. But I want you to understand that this is very different. Daniel is now here transported to the city of Susa. Susa is about 200 miles east of Babylon. If you think in your mind's eye of all those small maps that you've seen in the USA today or whatever about the Middle East, Susa is directly east of Babylon, which would be about the center of Iraq, and directly north of that top point of the Persian Gulf. So it is not quite far into Afghanistan, but it is closer there than it is to the center of Iraq. It's probably what we might consider central or eastern Iran. And so, this was a city that had been great, but had been destroyed. It would be rebuilt by the Persians, but now it is a bit of an outpost. And out by a canal, in a district of the Babylonian Empire, Daniel has this vision. And I think God does this for a reason to separate out for us chapter 8 from chapter 7. It is very easy To simply carry over chapter 7 into chapter 8. And to come to wrong conclusions. Because we're used to seeing beasts and horns. But what I want us to see this morning are three things in Daniel's vision for his people. First, I would like us to see the writing of prehistory. The writing of prehistory. That is, in a sense, what this prophecy is. It is history written beforehand. And then secondly, I would like us to see the reason for prehistory, why God does this. And then finally, I think it is helpful to us to examine our reaction to prehistory. What do we think about this? So, the writing, the reason, and the reaction. It's alliterative with a little bit of creative license in the first point. Well, let's look then at the writing of prehistory. The first thing we see here is a beast. We might even more say an animal than a beast because it is a ram. Now, we're used to seeing beasts, but if we're honest with ourselves, the kinds of beasts we're used to seeing are are quite fearful. You know, misshapen, huge bears with bones in their mouth. Monster beasts that can't even be described. Uh, A beast that's like a leopard and and an eagle put together. And here we see a ram. It's almost like a pet compared to these other beasts. Well, it's not like a pet exactly here because it is different from the previous descriptions, but there is some similarities because this beast, this ram, is a bit ferocious. It's not one that you'd want to curl up next to your feet by the fire. It charges westward, northward, southward going everywhere it will, defeating all that comes before it. What is this beast with the two horns, one that is a little bit longer than the other, but comes up later? Now, if we only had the first half of Daniel 8, it would be, I think, very interesting to hear all of the commentators describe what this animal should be. We know this is true because we see it in other places in the scripture where there is a vision that is not interpreted. And everyone goes to all lengths of fancies and differences and disagreements. But here, thankfully, we know because Daniel needed to know exactly what this beast is. Look at verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And so we know that this ram is... The kingdom of Persia. Not dissimilar to what we have seen before in the bear and in the silver portion of the statue. And this fits well because the Persian Empire was an expansive empire. It conquered all that came before it. It laid waste to every other empire in the region, including Babylon. There's a reason why Daniel can be so confident In chapter 5, when he goes up to Belshazzar, because he knows exactly what's going to happen. And so, Persia expands to the west, taking over Babylon and Syria. It expands to the north, taking over the area of Armenia, which is sort of north of Turkey and Iraq. It expands to the south, taking over Egypt. Even the detail with the horns has an explanation. Because the king of the Persians was Cyrus II, so-called Cyrus the Great, And he came to the throne late. You see, the Medo-Persian Empire used to be the Median Empire. It was the empire of the Medes until the Persians got wind of this. And Cyrus basically took over the empire. He still called it the Medo-Persian Empire. But in truth, the Persians ran it. And so that's that horn that comes up late but is basically running the show. Now, you've seen this too. You've heard about this in business where there's a partnership where the silent partner really is silent, doesn't get to do much, gets told what to do. He's the 49% owner. That's what happens in the Persian Empire. And so, once again, Daniel knows what is going to happen in the future. And this ram goes and it is fierce and defeats everything in its sight until... Another fierce, ferocious animal comes on the scene, the dreaded goat. I think there's a reason for this. And again, as often happens in Daniel, I think God wants us to see the humor in this. Because this ferocious ram, what is essentially a domestic animal, is destroyed By a goat. And this goat comes swiftly. It comes so swiftly that its feet do not touch the ground. It is the flying goat. It comes with great fierceness and anger and wrath. And it destroys the kingdom of Persia. The kingdom that couldn't be destroyed by anyone else. And don't lose sight of the fact that this is a wonder. How could this happen? This kingdom had just defeated everyone, west, north, and south. And now here, a goat comes on the scene. And before we can even say the word goat, it has completely destroyed the horns and the beast of the ram. This is a ferocious beast. And again, we are not left to chance. We are not left to our speculation because this description is described for us in interpretation as well. Look with me at verse 21. The angel says, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. And so, again, just as we saw in the beast, the leopard with the wings of an eagle to denote swiftness. Here we again see the Greek empire described by its ferocity and swiftness. And this is exactly what happens in history. Alexander the Great defeats the Persian Empire, an empire that had stood for more than 200 years. Think about that. And he defeats them in three years. He conquers an area wider than 2,000 miles with an army that walks in three years. It is completely unheard of before or, quite frankly, since he conquers the entire known world, does not lose a battle and swiftly from place to place annihilates the Persian Empire. He raises his army in Greece and then he goes across into Turkey and wins the Battle of Granicus and then he crosses over from Turkey and down into Syria, and he wins the battle of Issus, a battle he shouldn't have won by all respects, a battle where he was so outnumbered that the Persian king brought his wife and his mother to the battlefield to watch what was going on. And his defeat is so swift, the king leaves them behind. Now imagine that. Honey, I'm out going out to get milk and a new chariot. I'll be back. Talk about a rocky relationship with your mother. Do you remember, son, last year when you left me for King Alexander and I was imprisoned? This is a stunning defeat. And then he sweeps through Palestine, sweeps through Egypt where he is proclaimed a god. And then goes in and at the great decisive battle of Gagamala wins a battle which today is studied around the world by the military for its tactics. That's how impressive it was. You see, we think of this, and we think of Alexander the Great, and we think of these hero stories. But there's one thing that we can't forget. That Alexander the Great, while he was a swift and powerful goat, was also a fierce goat. He sieged the town of Tyre. And when they didn't surrender, when he took it, he killed every man of military age by crucifixion. And then he went down and sieged the town of Gaza. And they obviously didn't learn the lesson of Tyre. And what he did was then kill every male and send the women and children into slavery. That he came to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem said, come on in, we surrender. And oh, by the way, look here, there's this prophecy in Daniel 8 about a king of Greece who will defeat the king of Persia. Maybe that's you. And this, of course, just fed into his ego. You see, we need to understand that Alexander was not just a heroic king. He was a king who was a savage, wicked conqueror. He was another manifestation of the power of man, seeking to gain complete autonomy. Alexander doesn't live much longer. He goes and he wins the Battle of Gaugamela, conquers Afghanistan, the last king to really do that. You know all of the things you hear in the news about how hard it is to keep a military presence in Afghanistan? Alexander did it. And then he went up against the kingdom of India with their war elephants. And the only thing that stopped him was his army literally threw down their swords and said, we're tired, we want to go home. And Alexander wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. And then he dies mysteriously of some kind of fever. And he goes off the scene and he is replaced by, guess how many kingdoms? four: his four generals, Ptolemy, who became the king of Egypt, Cassander, who became the king of Macedonia, that is most of Greece, Lysimachus who became the king of Thrace, that is northern Greece, Bulgaria and parts of Turkey, and Seleucius, who became the king of Babylon and the East. Now what is with this besides a good history lesson? I'm saving some homeschool moms some time in history lessons of the Middle East. Well, I think what we need to understand from this is that human empires are powerful. There is a ram that cannot be stopped. There is a goat that is fierce and tramples. But ultimately, these empires are weak. They are replaced by the next best thing. They think they will last forever, but they do not. And for beasts, they are really just overgrown pets, goats and rams. And so it is important for us to think of this as we think of our own nation, And we think of our own nation as one that will never be toppled, that will never be defeated, that our will will always be done. It's also important as we think of places like China or India or Burma where Christians are persecuted. And we think that these nations can never be toppled, that the church will never have sway. And God says, these are but overgrown pets in my world, on my leash. Ultimately, they're weak. There's also an application here for you and for me. Because, you see, oftentimes our monsters, our beasts, are not empires. It's the doctor's visit. It's counseling for difficulty in our marriage. It's concern about our children and their education and their growth. And, you see, what God says is, in the face of Him... All of your beasts are cut down to size. You see, your problems may be monumental in your sight, but they're not in God's. These empires are huge to us, but in God's eyes they are but for a moment, and they are but flecks of sand. You see, you may not be able to handle difficulties in your marriage, but God can. You may not be able to handle strife at work, but God can. You may not be able to cure yourself or deal with sickness, but God can. You see, this is what God is telling us through prehistory. The last thing that we see here in this prehistory is the little horn that rises up from the four horns. And when we think about it, all of this description of the ram and the goat is really just what we might say context or introduction. Because, you see, what Daniel is really concerned with is this king, this little horn, who we would identify with Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Now, there's an important thing here, because to history, Antiochus Epiphanes is a footnote. He's an unimportant, minor king in an area of the world that isn't that significant. People don't write books or make movies about Antiochus. They make movies about Alexander. They make movies about the great clash of Greece and Persia. But you see, God is not interested in what man is interested in. He is interested in his own devices. He is interested in his own decrees and history. His priorities are not always ours. And so Antiochus comes on the scene here in verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south. Now commentators in Daniel are usually all over the place. You don't have the privilege of reading nine, ten commentators on a given passage. This is one of the few areas in this entire book where everybody is in agreement that this little horn is Antiochus, because it describes him such to a T. He comes out of the four horns. He grows and grows large in exactly the area he did in history. He comes into the West, sweeps into Palestine, And invades Egypt. He grows. He attacks the glorious land. Which is, of course, the promised land. And so this is important. That this little horn is different from the little horn of chapter 7. Chapter 7 is a little horn that is describing perhaps the most obvious type of the Antichrist. Here, Antiochus is an Antichrist, but he is not the Antichrist. But he certainly puts forth the effort into it. Because what he does is, he goes into Jerusalem and he says, there will be no more circumcision. Ever. By the way, no more sacrifices. By the way, no more praying to God. Basically, he makes everything about biblical Judaism, biblical religion and the worship of God, illegal upon the pain of death. And he keeps his word. He kills between twenty and 50,000 Jews In a short span of time. He takes a pig, an unclean animal, and he puts it on the altar to Yahweh and sacrifices it. And then he places an altar and a statue to Zeus right in the Holy of Holies of the temple. This temple that had just been rebuilt in the early 2nd century BC. You can imagine what this would do to the Jews. They had been in... uh, Exile, And they come back and they rebuild this glorious temple and now this king imposes his will upon them. You can understand maybe even just a little bit of what this might feel like if you get annoyed that there's no permissible prayer in school. Now think about that. You can have prayer at home. You can have prayer out in the street. You, you just can't have audible prayer in school. But here, for the Jews... Antiochus wipes out all prayer. He wipes out all worship. He wipes out all sacrifice. And he attacks both God and man, declaring himself to be God. His nickname is Epiphanes, which means the manifestation of God. This is the writing of prehistory. So, why does God give us all of this information? Is it so that we can write headlines ahead of time? So that we can have contests to figure out who can pick up the most details? No. There are three reasons, I think, for giving us this prehistory. The first is so that we might have certainty. The second is so that we might understand conflict. And the third is that we might have comfort. First, we need to understand with certainty the Word of God. Sometimes, we need more than a good logical argument. Isn't that true? Sometimes, have you ever had a discussion with someone and you think you don't understand why they don't just agree with you? Your argument is completely logical. You've got all the corners squared. You've gone through it. You maybe even tested it out on someone and you don't understand. And we look at them and we say, don't get so emotional. Right? Until someone tries to do that on us. And then we say, you can't tell me how not to feel. You can't tell me how not to think. And you see, that happens to us as the people of God, too, especially in strife and struggle. When the church is being persecuted, you don't sit down and say, yes, that's a good rational argument. I could see where Antiochus would do that. He did feel betrayed by uh, the Jews in his campaign against Egypt. I could see how that would make him angry and he might take some steps. No, what you want to see are pictures, storyboards. We might even say flannel graphs. You want it cut as simple as can be. And that's what God is doing here. And you see, he wants us to understand that he knows exactly where history is going. He knows exactly with certainty what will happen. And we need to know this not so that we know what's going to happen. You see, often that's our view of prophecy. We need to figure everything in Daniel and Revelation out so we can get everything straight in our minds. When in reality, what God is saying here is, you need to know that I have everything straight in my mind. History is not random. I am completely in control. I know exactly who will be king. I know exactly which empire will rise and will fall. I know exactly what will happen in your life. And that gives us great certainty. There's also a sense of certainty even about God's judgment. We'll talk about that in a minute. So we have certainty. And that certainty comes in the context of conflict. God is telling Daniel and us that he understands that there is conflict. That this conflict comes against his people. You see, oftentimes what is very difficult for those who are new to the Christian faith, who have just come to love and embrace Jesus Christ, is they can't understand why once that happens, everything else isn't just fine and perfect. Because look at all these promises in God's word. Shouldn't my marriage be perfect now? should my job be perfect now? Won't have to worry about money now. And there are whole churches that spread this kind of lie. That everything needs to be perfect if God loves you. And the backside of that is, well, if it isn't perfect, He probably doesn't love you as much as He should. But that's not what God says here in Daniel. He says that there is a conflict and that this conflict is against more than flesh and blood. Now, See here that there are real people listening to this vision. Persia is a real empire. Greece is a real empire. Antiochus Epiphanes is a real person. There are real deaths. There are real imprisonments. But at the same time, God says that that's not all there is. Because do you see that this little horn goes against not only the glorious land, not only the starry host, but he goes up against the prince of princes himself. You see, Antiochus said, I am God. He set himself up as a deity. And God wants us to see that attacks against his people and his church are attacks against him. You see, often as the church, we think about the fact that we have conflict and strife, and we think of God standing off to the side somewhere somewhere, Waiting for his minute to come in. Or perhaps wringing his hands, concerned for how we will handle persecution. When in reality, God says, just as he said to Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, just like he said to Daniel in the lion's den, I am in the midst of that battle with you. Your battle is my battle. And he says more than that, do you see? He says, not only is your battle my battle, I am fighting on your side. And that makes victory certain. Our fight is His fight. And this shouldn't surprise us. Because look at the attacks that come against God's people. What did Antiochus Epiphanes do? He stops the daily sacrifice it says. The sacrifice the regular burnt offering is taken away. The very first thing he does is attack what has been called the liturgical discipline of the church. He takes away its worship. It would be as if someone said, you can never worship God on Sunday morning, publicly, upon pain of death. Now, you might think to yourself, that's unfair. But Bibles are everywhere. And I've got the Internet. And I can listen to MP3 sermons. But think about what that would do to your discipline. Think about how you might be tempted to sleep in a little later one Sunday. Think about how you might be tempted to just push it off just a little bit. Think of how you would miss gathering together with other believers. You see, this is an attack against the church. And it it's made even more clear because what he does is he attacks the temple of God. He goes after the very temple. The place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And this is how Satan operates today. Because the temple of God is not some physical building, but it is what? The church. The church. Now, think about this. Isn't this how Satan attacks the church today? He, he tells God's people, well, worship's not that important. You can be a Christian by yourself. You don't need to be a part of a community. You don't need to gather together publicly. And then he attacks the church by introducing strife and struggle. He introduces wrong thinking and bad doctrine. That's exactly what Antiochus did. He changed the order of the sacrifices. He changed the object of worship. He changed what was right and good and true. And truth itself, as it were, is overthrown. You see, God wants you to know that there is indeed a conflict. He is in the middle of it. And knowing that makes us prepared. And we're not surprised. Have you ever, maybe when you were a kid, maybe just... The males amongst us. You ever played that game where you each turn to the side and you punch each other in the shoulder as hard as you can? You know that game, right? It's a lot of fun. Ladies don't do this. It's not very ladylike. But you see, what happens is it becomes a contest because it's not as much even how hard you punch. It's you know the punch is coming, so you tense up as much as you can. You want your muscle to be ready, and it doesn't really hurt that much unless you're playing that game with someone much larger than you. But when someone gives you what is called in common parlance a sucker punch, it can take just one punch to knock you out, off your feet. You see, this is a principle here that we can use in our spiritual lives, that we need to be ready for the conflict. We need to know that life is conflict, both material and spiritual, and that God is on our side. This is how we deal with and and and, and handle conflict. Finally, there is a comfort found in prehistory in knowing that God has an absolutely precise calendar. Now, I've said to you before about Daniel, we only take what we are given and we don't try to go off in flights of fancy. And so we're told that one kingdom is the king of of Persia. We're told another is the king of Greece. And then we're told a king comes out of the kingdom of Greece. So this is all logical and easy to tell. But then we're told... 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, what does this mean? Is it a round number? Is it evening and morning sacrifices, so it's 1,500 days? Is it 2,300 days? Is it three and a half years? Is it seven years? And I could get out a calculator and charts and show you how three and a half years works, how seven years works, or how it's a general statement. But I'm not going to bore you with that. What I want you to see from this is, is that God has a precise calendar with everything. And he doesn't always share it with us. And That's okay. Just knowing that he's in charge and everything has been decreed by him, we don't need to know the exact dates. We just need to know the reason for the conflict and to know that the conflict has an end. Well, this is reason for writing prehistory. Finally, and briefly, we need to think about our reaction to prehistory. Again, oftentimes, the books like, books like Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation become instances to tell about how much we know about every obscure part of the Bible and how we can bring it together to form some kind of historical narrative before the fact. But that's not What Daniel 8 is doing. Daniel is trying to give us a reaction to this revelation from God. And again, I see three things here. Three reactions. First, a reaction with our heads. Second, a reaction with our hearts. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, a reaction with our lives. A reaction coming first with our heads is this, is that we must, as Christians, learn to live with partial knowledge. We cannot know everything. And this is important. We need to know that there are certain things that God hasn't revealed to us. There are other things that God has revealed to us imperfectly, that is, incompletely, for His own sovereign purpose. Have you thought about the fact that at the end of this chapter, Daniel says he did not understand the vision? Now, if anybody in the whole Bible apart from Jesus Christ, should understand a vision, it should be Daniel. He has more of them. And they're described for him. I mean, the book of Daniel is Daniel going from scene to scene, interpreting dreams, interpreting visions, interpreting signs. And at the end of the day here, he says, I don't understand it. If he doesn't understand it, With an explanation, partial at least, from an angel, what makes us think we can plumb the depths of every bit of this vision? You see, we need to learn to live with partial knowledge. You parents understand this principle, right? Your kids come up to you and they say, well, why did this person say that? Or, why did we go here and not there? Or, can you tell me this detail? Can can you tell me that? I need to know. I want to know. And you say, no. I'm not going to get into it. All you need to know is, and you cut to the chase, right? You don't go through all of the details that they don't need to know. They think they need to know it. They think it's amazing how critical certain things are to a seven-year-old or a ten-year-old. They're absolutely critical. And you just have to say, no, you don't need to know that. That's what God is saying. Because when you say that to your child, you want them to be focused on the task or on the end. Not on all of the myriad of details. That's what God wants for us. We must be able to live with partial knowledge. At the same time, understanding that this is the truth of God's Word. That God's Word comes to us. And it is true. We must react to this not only with our heads, but also with our hearts. Understand also what happens to Daniel here at verse 27. At the end of this vision, he was overcome and lay sick. For some days. Now, this is not because somebody gave him a bad pita by the canal. He's literally sick at heart. He's physically ill because of what has been described to him. And what has been described to him is the great suffering of the people of God. And it's a suffering that will not happen for hundreds of years. Now, think about this. Do you weep for the suffering that will come to the church in 2415? Do you even weep for the suffering that will come to the church today in Burma? Or Sudan? Or Haiti? Or China? Or India? Or Massachusetts? Or New York? Or California? Or other areas of Texas? You see... Daniel reacts to this vision not just by what he can think about it, but he is drawn into it by his love of the people of God and his love for seeing the sovereignty of God. This is something that we must have in our lives as well. Finally, we must react to this vision. We must react to this prehistory with our lives. There is a sense in which Daniel is overcome and lay sick Because the work of ministry is hard. It takes a lot out of you. And you don't have to have a vision and be transported to Susa to know that, do you? We can grow weary in well-doing. And so we must understand the burden of serving the Lord. But Daniel does something that I think the church could be very well served by. You see, after he lay sick for some days, he rose up. What did he do? He went about the king's business. You can interpret that one of two ways. I think it's ambiguous on purpose. He got up and he went to work. He took his card and he punched it and clocked in. He worked in his calling. In the midst of all that was going around him, and the great truths that he knew, and the great spiritual battle, he did what he was called to do, to glorify God in his calling. And it doesn't matter whether that calling is drawing, or adding up numbers, or changing diapers, or cooking. We glorify God in it. Because you see, there's the other part of that ambiguity. It's not just the king of Babylon's business. It's the great king's business that he is about which happens to involve his daily work. And so as we think about the history that has been laid out before us in our own lives, we can think about the book of Revelation and knowing the victory of God that is to come. We must react to it. We must respond to it with our heads, embracing the truth. We must respond to it with our hearts, loving God's people and longing to see God's sovereignty displayed for all to see. And we must react to it with our lives as well. Giving everything we have to the Lord our God.